Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer, producer, and avid gear collector, Pete Min. First of all, Twitter killer Threads did a surprise launch last week and quickly reached 100 million users in pretty much record time. That's partly because Threads is an offshoot of Instagram, and you had to have an Instagram account in order to establish an account on Threads. Your profile and all of your followers would then automatically follow you onto Threads. To put those numbers into perspective, Twitter had 450 million monthly active users as of 2022 when Elon Musk took over, and now that's dropped to about 238 million. Approximately 80 million are in the United States. Now, Cloudflare says that Twitter has dropped from 32nd position domain ranking to now 37th, but it's still the seventh most popular social platform in the world, according to Hootsuite. So all that sounds bad for Twitter, except that Thread's active engagement has dropped 25% in the first week of operation. Active users originally spent about 20 minutes per day on the platform, but now that's down to just eight minutes. One of the problems is that Thread's rolled out a little half-baked. Although each post can be up to 500 characters long and the video is up to five minutes long, there's still no provision for hashtags, you can't DM, there are no view counts, and there's no way to craft your own newsfeed, which is really important. It's also now just a mobile-only app with no desktop access. It's still early in the days for threads, and Twitter looks to be extremely vulnerable, but it's no sure thing. Many people who took a break from Twitter when Elon took over say they feel a lot better not being on a social platform all day, and they may not be coming back. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, it looks like music retailers are in trouble again. When COVID hit, it was one of the best things that ever happened to music retail, believe it or not. People had a lot of time in their hands, so they turned to music to fill some of it up. At first, there was a gear shortage because of supply chain issues, but retailers doubled their orders to get on top of their inventory. Now that we're back to normal, both retailers and manufacturers are left with a glut of unsold merchandise. Some of that is because the biggest beneficiary of the lockdown wasn't the conventional music dealer, it was Reverb.com, the online marketplace that hosts thousands of individual and commercial resellers. Last year, the site generated transactions that had a value of $943 million, making it the third biggest music product seller. So now they're trailing only Guitar Center and Sweetwater. While it took Guitar Center and Sweetwater both about 35 years to hit a billion in revenue, Reverb did it in just over a decade. Today, about 60% of all gear transactions are from the resale market. 
Why buy something new when you might be able to find something just as good or better that's pre-owned? Yet another problem for conventional music retailers is the fact that school enrollment is declining, and that means that the steady business of wind and bowed instruments is taking a real hit as well. That especially spells big trouble for small mom-and-pop retailers. According to Music Trades, during the last 30 years, at least 175 of the top 200 music businesses have come and gone on the list due to acquisition or mismanagement, market shifts, or retirement. There's still a big demand for music gear, though. That never goes away regardless of the economy. But just a small change downward in musicians' purchasing behavior means some big changes for the supply chain. My guest in this episode is engineer, producer, and avid gear collector Pete Min. Pete is the owner of Lucy's Meat Market Studio and Colorfield Records, which is a label where he collaborates with some of LA's best musicians to create one-off LPs made entirely within his studio. Pete has worked with major artists including Feast, Diana Ross, Strokes, Third Eye Blind, Orville Peck, Shawn Mendes, Ringo Starr, and many more. He also has a studio filled with not only vintage gear, but a fantastic guitar, bass, amp, drum, and keyboard collection that almost any musician would die for. During the interview, we talked about doing jingles, buying vintage gear, hot riding guitars in the 90s, his favorite mics and plugins, and much more. I spoke with Pete via Zoom from his studio in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got into the business. I played guitar in high school, went to college, got out of college, went to New York. I was, I lived, I grew up in Jersey and I just knew that I wanted to go to New York and play in bands. And I, you know, started to play in bands, but all the while I was playing in bands, I was always buying gear. So at a certain point, I did some touring, a little bit of touring. I was I was okay as a guitar player, like not great, but you know, good enough to t- do some tours. But I just I always had a uh, fascination with sound, even just with guitar stuff. And then I eventually started, you know, four track, eight track, eight uh, Tascam D88s, uh, Atari eight track. And then I bought a Harrison console. I was living in New York. I was living in a 500 square foot, maybe even smaller apartment. And I bought a Harrison console. (laughs) The one that, um, I think the one that was, uh, that what's his name? Uh, um, Bruce Swedeen. Yeah. Bruce Swedeen, the four, the 32 C 32 input. Yeah. It was that Brown Harrison console. And I bought that. And I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't realize it was in storage, which meant that it was going to be a nightmare, but I didn't realize that. (laughs) So I bought it. I put it together in my apartment and I realized like what I had done. (laughs) And then I proceeded to recap every channel. So I got very good at soldering and I just kept on buying and more and more gear. And then at a certain point, so I didn't come up in the studios. I just bought gear and just just recorded my bands. And then at a certain point, probably around 2000, I was living in New York. I got a studio in Brooklyn because I had enough gear. I just looked around and I was like, wow, I have enough gear to, you know, record bands. 
I started to record bands. And at the same time, kind of around that time, I was doing bands. I was tired of being poor. And a friend of mine started a music house. So I started doing commercials and I started winning. And I was like, wow, this is like how people make money or one way people make money. If, yeah. You know, you're not going to be a rock star. Then there's got to be another way. And so so around that time, I um, started doing commercial stuff. And I also opened up a studio in Brooklyn. I got a room, you know, and just started recording indie bands. And then around 2006, I moved out here because I had a friend who was kind of hooked up with a publishing company. I had been in New York for 20 years. And so I thought I need a change. And I moved out here and got a house in Eagle Rock, set up a studio. Pretty early on, recorded this band called Airborne Toxic Event that actually did pretty well. And we, my friend and I had a production company, which I realized it was, you know, we were the track guys and then we would have top line people come over doing that shtick. And I realized I'm just not good at that because mm -hmm. it's not, it's just not my, um, it wasn't what I really wanted to do. So I think if you're going to do that game, like you have to want to do that game. And yeah. obviously the people who do it well are the people who want to do it the you know, most. And so, so then I just started recording bands. I moved from Eagle Rock. I bought a place in Studio City, set up a studio there. And I wor started getting some pretty good work. I worked with, do you know Michelle and Daguicello? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I did three records with her and I was doing stuff. And then I finally moved to Eagle Rock in 2014 and I set up and I finally set up, I have a 1600 square foot building, uh, which is my studio. I have another 1200 square foot building. That's my house. And I'm actually in the process of doing an ADU and I'm going to, I'm going to do a, like a little production room, you know, you know, there's one of, you know, yeah. microphone and a computer, but mine's going to be better because it's going to have two pianos. It's going to have a mini Moog. It's going to have a Jupiter, you know, a, a Juno, you know, it's going to have stuff in there that if these kids who are doing that kind of music actually play music, they'll, <laughs> they'll, uh, they might be psyched that there's actually instruments, but I mean, you know, the state of people doing that kind of pop music is everything's on a computer. And yeah. I don't think any, I think, there's a lot of sessions where no one's playing anything. So right outside, right outside the city. So, you know, I would always go in, go see concerts. And then once I got my license, man, I would go in, go see shows all the time. I mean, there was just so much music to see in New York. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it, it was great. I lived in Jersey for a time, but down South at the shore. I was like 20 minutes, like at night, 20 minutes outside the city. So mm. it, was, it was awesome. Yeah. Definitely. And I knew where, and, and, you know, once I did that, I knew where I wanted to be, which was, you know, New York. Okay. So it sounds like you had a pretty good, at least the beginning of a career doing, I guess, jingles that you're doing, right? Yeah. I was playing guitar in bands, doing that stuff and, you know, go doing a little bit of touring. I played to Debbie Harry for a little while, did some, you know, just stuff, just playing with different people. But yeah, but then at a certain point I started working with this company called Duotone in New York. And I just started winning, just 
I don't know why, just, you know, it was a lot easier to do it than it is now, for sure. Um, there was just less competition and there was just more of it. There was more money. I mean, it was around kind of 2000 when, you know, the money was flowing and it was the internet. Like they were making ads for every stupid thing, every dot com thing, you know. And so there was just, there was just so much work that it worked well for me. And I was able to buy more and more gear. And that's just what I did with my money is I always just constantly bought gear. So, and which is why I have a room filled with gear right now. I was looking at your gear list and some of the photos that you have. <laughs> and I'm really impressed actually with the guitar and amplifier collection that you have. <laughs> I'm a guitar player. So yeah, I, 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 um, I don't have any kids, so it's easy for me to kind of go there and, um, yeah. So, and I also kind of view it, it's one of the industries that you can actually buy stuff and write it off, but it doesn't go down in value. Yeah. Right. Well, if you buy the right stuff anyway, if you buy the right stuff, which I learned very early on, I was always into the vintage stuff. So, you know, with guitars, when my accountant, when I realized like, you know, when he told me that it's actually kind of good for you to spend money on gear, and I was like, yeah, but what's the catch? And there was no catch. That was a very bad moment for <laughs> me. And I mean, it, it actually worked out well, but but I was very early on on the vintage thing. So, And it wasn't because I was smart or I knew anything. It was just that was what my interest was, where my interest was. And so I just bought, you know, vintage guitars and vintage amps and and it worked out. Okay, you have quite a collection. What's your favorite? Well, my black strat, because it was my first one and I bought it for probably 800 bucks and I did all the worst things that you could do to it. I never did a Floyd Rose, but I put EMGs, I put a humbucker, I did all the like every bad thing that you could do in the 80s to a vintage guitar. I did except the Floyd Rose. Thankfully, I didn't do that. But yeah, I ruined that guitar, but I still have the pickups. The pickups are still in there and it's an amazing guitar. It's still an amazing guitar. I did the same thing with an SG, an, an old SG, and luckily I kept the pickups. Eventually I sold it because it was Frankenstein to death. But I kept the pickups in their, pre, their uh, PAFs. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is in the 80s, you know, they weren't, they weren't worth that much. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, yeah, put a humbucker, go ahead, <laughs> like route it out. Well, you were encouraged in a way to do all that stuff. That was the big thing. And True, you yeah. almost looked down upon if you didn't have something hot rotted. Exactly. So, I mean, you were lucky if you didn't, if you went through that period and didn't do anything. But that was the one guitar that I kind of did a lot to. And, you know, but so that's just guitar wise, I would say that guitar is just, it means it's a sentimental guitar and I'm not sentimental about gear. I, I can get rid of stuff. No problem. But I've been lately getting into like old Martins, which are not cheap, but I just <laughs> didn't know about the old stuff, you know, the scallop brace, you know, Yeah, yeah. and I just wanted to know what it was like. And I got one recently and wow, it is, it's the myth is true. They sound really incredible. I did a session the other day at a friend's house, and he, he pulled out one of his favorite guitars, a 58 Les Paul. And it was in almost perfect condition. 
I said, how, oh, much, wow. how much do you pay for it? And he looked at me and he said, too much. And he wouldn't tell me, but I, you know, I, I'm going in my brain here. Okay, I kind of know what, <laughs> what it's worth. And you didn't get a deal. Right. Well, I think it depends on when you bought it, you know? Yeah. Like, if you bought it in 2007, you may have paid too much money. Yeah. The market isn't quite as aggressive as it was. That's for yeah. sure. Did you ever go to the Dallas Guitar Show? No, but I, but my friend Jay Rosen, do you know Jay Rosen? He's up in Sanford. He's in San Francisco. He's a dealer guy. And he told me, he just got back from there and he told me that it's kind of goofy now because there's concerts, there's people selling Tupperware. Oh, there's people. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's more like a fair now than it is a guitar show. So he says, I don't know if he's going to go back, but did, have you gone? I heard when it was in the heyday, it was amazing. Yes, I was there in the heyday and it was amazing. And what was interesting was they opened it up privately the day before just to dealers. So I was with the dealer and he said, meet me at sort of like behind the counter of the hotel before we started. And they gave him a briefcase and he said, look at this. And inside the briefcase, it must have been two or three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, just like you see in the movies, you know, all, yep. all you know, stacks of money. <laughs> so at the end of the day, there was nothing left in the briefcase. He bought it all on guitars. Yeah. But within 30 days, he had sold them all and made money. I mean, what year was that? Yes, it was in the heyday. It probably was in the early... Like 2004, 2003. Yeah, yeah somewhere in that, there. Those years were insane. Yeah. You could buy a telly for maybe 20, and the next year sell it for 28. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. But then in 2008, woo-woo, yep. it really crashed. You also have a pretty nice mic collection. Well, an outboard and nice collection in general, but... Is there a microphone that you really like? I like them all. I don't, I mean, if it's vocals, the Elam that I have is really good. It's a reissue, but it actually has the original capsule. I, I found a CK12 capsule and it has an original transformer in it. It's So that's a very lovely microphone. The Bronner microphone, um, it's a VM1, but it's a Klaus honey one mm, yeah that one. microphone is really beautiful it's it's i mean if it's a saxophone and there's a lot of top end it's not a great microphone for that i had a sax player come in the other day i put a m49 up because in all those pictures you know with miles davis and all those yeah they use m49 so i'm like yeah i'm gonna use an m49 it's an embarrassment of riches over here i really love the km53 Mm, yeah, yeah, it's an Omni and it's aluminum capsule. So it's really like an M50 basically. Um, and that microphone is incredible. People don't use Omni a lot. And Omni, man, Omni is a great pattern for recording if you have a good room. When I first came to Hollywood, I started to get a reputation as the vocal guy and people would hire me for the vocal sound. And there was no, the only trick is I used Omni most of the time. Oh, wow. I didn't tell anybody, but that's what the trick was. And everybody loved the sound. So I was like, I think if you have a good room. Yeah. It's man, Omni is incredible. Do you have a particular recording technique that you really like? Well, I mean, the way I have my room set up is I have 
I care more about musicians than I care about microphones or mic pre's or like if we're in a session and somebody has an idea, I want to be able to execute whatever they want to do within a very short amount of time. So like, for instance, my drums are generally set up all the time. And if the sound has to change, I have different drums that I have. So I'll change out kits, but generally the microphones stay, you know, where they are, you know, if there needs to be a a super compressed microphone or something, then I'll put something like that up. Generally, I don't use a ton of compression on things. So technique is, you know, if there's a, you know, if somebody wants to record something, I you generally stick whatever mic that's closest in front of whatever they want to do. I'm not very, I'm not very um, persnickety about like, I just put the thing up. If I come in my room and it sounds right, I'm just like, let's go. Yeah, good. Because I just think that when people have an idea, they want to just get it down. And I think that's more important than what, if it sounds bad in here, then I'll change the mic out or, you know, move the microphone. But generally, I have really good mics. And even if you have an SM57, generally, it'll pick it up, especially <laughs> if you're going into a good mic pre. Yeah, it sounds like a different mic. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of, I'm not really, there's no magic to me. It's just their microphones and it, my room sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I think, and and then and then it's the instruments. I mean, it's the player first obviously and then the instrument and then the room has to sound good and if you have all that i mean it's not magic to me you know it's just kind of it works yeah it sounds good let's go it sounds like a bass let's go yeah yeah but that's the whole thing though i mean you really have to get the idea when it's there that's the most important thing is like i really care about i care about when somebody has an idea with upright bass, I do like the, um, I think it's Bruce Swedean where he puts the, like he'll take a, an Omni, like a BK 4007 or three, the Omni one, yeah, yeah. and stick it in the bridge with two rubber bands. Yeah. You know, so if the bass player moves, the mic's always in the same spot. And that's a really beautiful sound. Sometimes bass players think that there's too much high end, but I so I just roll it off. Yeah, sure. It's like, okay, no problem. How's that? Yeah, great. So, you know, and so if I need the top end, I can grab it. But so I do like that. And I got that from Bruce Wadian. Let's talk about mixing. So what's your approach mixing? Is it the same as when, you know, you're recording? Recording is ideas first and you're not persnickety, as you'd say, uh, as on... Um, mixing, I go fast. I am not... What does that mean? I try to mix as fast as possible and not think about it. I just kind of listen to stuff. And as I hear stuff that's not right, I just go in and try to manipulate it. And I just try to more like a performance in a way to me than it is a science project because I just get bored. Um, So if I'm not excited about it, then, you know, it's just, I get impatient. I'm just impatient. So for me, I just work super fast and then hopefully I get in the ballpark. And there's so many plugins now that are so good that it's just, and and a lot of stuff that I do is my records. 
that I'm making, um, or like I'll record a lot of the stuff that I mix. So for me, I know how to mix the stuff that I record because it's, you know, I'm doing it all the time. And like I said, I don't use a lot of compression. So it's generally just like tightening things up. And Okay. Well, do you find yourself mixing as you go along as you're recording? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Because I think that in order to know what you need, you need to know how it sounds. So a lot of times if I get you know, tracks from people who aren't mixers, there's always inevitably way more tracks than is needed because they're not hearing the stuff that they did early on because it's getting buried by all the stuff that they added. So once you take all that stuff away, I mean, that's just my opinion, you know, and I like space, you know, I like all that hip hop stuff because there's nothing on it, you know, but it's super clear. And I just think that if you have really good sounds early on and you make it sound really good, you put less stuff on and then you hear the really good stuff. You hear the really good sounds that you got early on because there's space to hear it. So I'm always, yeah. So I started a label called Colorfield Records and in like during those records, I'm constantly mixing as we're going along or I'm constantly mixing as I'm going along. Even when I'm doing sessions here, like for other people, I try to make it sound like a record as soon as possible, always. You know, there's the story about Kevin Shipley doing all, all those Journey records where when they were finished, and these are big records, but when it was finished in time to mix, it took them an hour because, you know, they had all the sounds. They, they yeah. basically mixed it as it they Yeah, they along, spent you know? time on the sounds. They got the sounds right. He's like, He's probably like, I mean, it's so easy to do now, you know, because it's not like, oh, the next day you got to pull it up on the board or you're got a different set, you're at a different studio and you got to, you know, put the tapes up and like get it, you know. But now it's just like, you know, you open it up and it's exactly the same way as it was yesterday. You know, you talk about mixing as a performance. You would have loved the old days before automation. Oh, yeah. Well, I had a Harrison. Oh, okay. Yes, you, you know about it then, <laughs> so, right? I, I, I wasn't as good as I am now, for sure. But yes, having knobs and all that stuff is just so much more fun. Um, but I do find mixing in the box is pretty fast. And and there's certain automation things that you can do that just you just can't do on, on a board. Okay, are there plugins, certain plugins that you always use? Uh, Fab Filter, for sure, Echo Boy. There's some new ones, the 8200, the Pulsar 8200 is really good. There's a, I think a, a Soma EQ, I think it was. Oh, it yeah, yeah, like right. A, it's like a mastering kind of EQ. Like those, those EQs nowadays are incredible. I think we're getting away from the old vintage idea where it was, okay, let's sound like, you know, an, an API or let's sound like, a, you know, 560 or something like that. Now it's like, well, let's just make it really good in the digital domain and forget about sounding like something before. And there are also all those things that, you know, how many 1176, you know, compressors can you have and or API or Neve or, you know, so all that stuff already exists. And now they're going into the super esoterica stuff because they've already done all the like mainstays. So now they're like 
you know, just the super esoteric of pieces of gear. Um, but I have a lot of outboard gear. So I try to get, you know, when I go in the box, like I just try to get it sounding as good as possible. So once I'm in there, it's just tucking, you know, it's just fab filter stuff where I'm just, you know, getting resonances that aren't pleasant out, you know, high passing, low passing, that kind of stuff, more of that kind of thing. And then compression for sure, if I want it to be more modern sounding, but I'm, I don't get called for like a lot of that stuff. A lot of the stuff I get called for is just sessions that come in here and, you know, they want me to mix the stuff or, and then, and, or my label, you know, I'm mixing all the stuff on my label. Uh, we're doing vinyl and we're using Kevin Gray. Do you know who Kevin oh, Gray yeah, is? Oh yeah, sure. I know Kevin. He's the best. He's Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> He's Yoda when it comes to vinyl mastering. And so, cause I'm trying, my label is trying to go for that hi-fi, that market. So we are using Kevin Gray to master the vinyl. How do you distribute it then? I'm just curious. So I started the label, it's called Colorfield Records. And we start. I started it during COVID because during COVID, I was getting together with my friends just on the down low and just saying, hey, come over, let's do stuff because I was so bored. And we would just come in, just make music for music's sake, not because we we're trying to get hits or, yeah. you know, it was just for having fun. And and I realized like, wow, this is the most fun that I've had in a really long time. And I know a lot of like session people out here and, you know, you just like you, you live, you work with people out here and you just meet all these, there's so many talented people. And so I thought I'm going to start a label and I did start a label and, and so the way it's it's very diy it's very indie um so i have maybe 11 or 12 records out so far and we had digital distribution with this company called alpha pup they just got bought out by universal so now we're actually looking for digital distribution and we and our pr person actually recommended this one company to us he didn't think that they would be interested in us, but they are. So we're trying to get together with them and they actually have physical distribution as well. So when we do records, we do 500, we print 500. And so far it's just mail order. It's just through um, Bandcamp. Just recently, or in the last like three months, we started getting like record stores asking us to buy records directly. So we just sent 50 records to the store in Japan. There's a couple of stores in the Midwest who wanted some. So it's slow. Um, my first record, I probably only have 150 records left. You know, we don't do print a lot, but the last record that I just put out just got into the New York Times last week. So it's a slow and steady thing. Like it's long game for me. It's the thing that I care about the most, you know, and and so when I'm in my studio, it's it's um, I have a lot of instruments like synthesizers and drum machines and all that kind of stuff. And that's all the stuff that we use for these, you know, for the for the records. Well, you're certainly in a different space than let's say the mindset of the music businesses these days where it's all electronic. And like you were saying before, where there may not be a real player on a lot of records that you hear, but you're not there. You're in the space of 
Yeah, let's get real players with you know real instruments, and let's do it like that. Which yeah, on the same well, way. even beyond that, my the ethos of the label is to have people come in with no music, and we do everything in the room. So a record will take maybe 15, 16 days. So like, do you know Larry Goldings? Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Larry can't, he did a record. This guy, Mark Giana did a record. Yeah. So I have people come in. There's nothing, there's no agenda. They come in. And usually what I like to do is put people, like if it's Larry, like put him on a drum machine. Like I don't want him on something that he, I don't want to hear his bag of tricks. <laughs> I want to hear him messing around like he's in high school on something that he doesn't know, like a Buchla, you know, semi-modular or an EMS or just kind of weird stuff or a Lindrum or whatever, and just have him like do some stuff. I have a, a ATR 102. So a lot of, a lot of what happens is processing those sounds where I'll take, you know, like even if he plays a whole drum kit and it's, you know, he's not a drummer, but I'll just be like, just play, not to time, just play. I'll take that, flip it to my ATR, go down an octave, flip it back into the computer and quantize it. Yeah, there you and go. And see what happens. Yeah. And just see what it sounds like. And usually it sounds amazing. And then I'll say, okay, play to that now. So I'll get him on a mini Moog or I'll get him on a, you know, something else that he's not familiar with and construct tracks. So it's usually just one person in here. So there is a mix of super organic and then super modern because a lot of times I'm quantizing this stuff. So it makes it like it's sequenced, but it's organic sounds. Yeah. Yeah. They're manipulated. So that's kind of how that's, that's where my records are even, they're so specific that I'm not competing with anybody because no one's making these kind of records, you know, they're very specific. So it's good for me because I don't have to compete with anybody. Honestly, I think that what's going to happen is using real musicians on records is going to come back in a big way. And what leads me to think that is because of all of the AI music apps now, I've been putting together a course, AI for music production, so I've looked at a hundred of these things, and most of them are crap. Or they're really good, but they're really deep with the steep learning curve. There's very few that can just spit something out that's cool. But what's interesting here is the fact that musicians who are, I don't even want to say musicians, artists, that who are not particularly special, that are mediocre, well, guess what? AI can do exactly what you're doing. So what that means is, okay, now there's a whole lot of people that are looking to be creative. Well, I can't quite beat the machine. Maybe I can become a real player. <laughs> Maybe that becomes popular again. That's what I'm hoping. Well, I mean, there is so many young kids who are amazing. I mean, blazing, blazing, way better, like technique-wise, just like where they come in. I mean, I get kids coming into my place you know, they're in their 20s. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they play keyboard. Oh, we need drums. Oh, yeah, I can play drums. Uh. Oh, good job. I can play, you know, and they're just like, what? Like, so there are kids who are really putting the time in. They're doing their 10,000 hours and like they're just blazing. Sometimes there's, it feels like something's missing. 
you know, like be, uh, maybe I'm just like, oh, I'm an old guy. Yeah, I was way better in the you know day. But, you know, there's something, you know, sometimes it's amazing, but there is something I don't know. Well, what it is, is you, you came up in the era as I did, where you gigged a lot and you played in bands and you played with people all the time. And that doesn't necessarily happen because there's not that many places you can do it. That's true. And also, I think that, and I know this is, I'm not advocating this, but I think that most of those records that we all love, they weren't like totally straight when they were doing those records. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, for real. Like it yeah, was a right. big, it was a big part of. Yeah. That was the ethos culture. of the time. Yeah. Yeah. The culture, it was just different. And then when all of a sudden people get, you know, super straight, the music changes and you're like, I don't know. <laughs> is it as good? Like, and I'm not advocating that like you need that to to make good music, but sometimes when you look back at people's careers and you're like, wow, that was the best time period, there's something to it when they're kind of wrecked or whatever, they're damaged or something, and there it just makes it for more interesting art. And I do think that there's something about that. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk a, a lot. I, I, we can really go down a rabbit hole, and I'd like to talk to you again at, at some point. But one last question. In your journey, and you've worn a lot of hats here, what's the best piece of advice that you received? Maybe business advice, maybe life advice, maybe music advice. Maybe somebody imparted to you. Maybe you just learned it. You become what you do. Like a long time ago, I was doing a lot of like singer-songwriters, singer like playing guitar for singer songwriters and I didn't want to do that. And somebody said, you become what you do. And I thought, Oh wow, you're right. And I thought I want to do that, which means that you might take a hit to go there, but once you go there, then you get what you do. And that was very enlightening to me. So I think you got to go for what you want to do. Otherwise, you know, if you start mixing, hip-hop and you want to do rock you're going to be a hip-hop guy it's you know i do it too you know you just oh they did that record that's what they do you know like it's hard for people to like oh no i mean i think engineers right like if you're an engineer you can do anything because you should be able to you may not know all the tricks but it's sound it's like make it sound good like but i think people just get into this thing of like that's what they do and that was a very big thing for me was like you become what you do you can find out more about pete his studio lucy's meat market and colorfield records at petemin.com that's pete min p-e-t-e-m-i-n all one word dot com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com you can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.